Chapter Thirty One of the Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter Thirty One. One of the first things that Jurgis had done after he got a job was to go and see Maria. She came down into the basement of the house to meet him, and he stood by the door with his hat in his hand, saying, "'I've got work now, and so you can leave here.' But Maria only shook her head. There was nothing else for her to do, she said, and nobody to employ her. She could not keep her past a secret. Girls had tried it, and they were always found out. There were thousands of men who came to this place, and sooner or later she would meet one of them. And besides, Maria added, I can't do anything. I'm no good. I take dope. What could you do with me? Can't you stop? Jurgis cried. No, she answered. I'll never stop. What's the use of talking about it? I'll stay here till I die, I guess. It's all I'm fit for. And that was all that he could get her to say. There was no use trying. When he told her he would not let Elzbieta take her money, she answered indifferently, "'Then it'll be wasted here, that's all.' Her eyelids looked heavy, and her face was red and swollen. He saw that he was annoying her, that she only wanted him to go away. So he went, disappointed and sad. Poor Jurgis was not very happy in his home life. Elzbieta was sick a good deal now and the boys were wild and unruly and very much the worse for their life upon the streets. But he stuck by the family nevertheless, for they reminded him of his old happiness, and when things went wrong he could solace himself with a plunge into the socialist movement. Since his life had been caught up into the current of this great stream, things which had before been the whole of life to him came to seem relatively slight importance. His interests were elsewhere, in the world of ideas. His outward life was commonplace and uninteresting. He was just a hotel porter, and expected to remain one while he lived. But meantime, in the realm of thought, his life was a perpetual adventure. There was so much to know, so many wonders to be discovered. Never in all his life did Jurgis forget the day before election when there came a telephone message from a friend of Harry Adams asking him to bring Jurgis to see him that night, and Jurgis went and met one of the minds of the movement. The invitation was from a man named Fisher, a Chicago millionaire who had given up his life to settlement work, and had a little home in the heart of the city's slums. He did not belong to the party, but he was in sympathy with it and he said that he was to have as his guest that night the editor of a big eastern magazine who wrote against socialism, but really did not know what it was. The millionaire suggested that Adams bring Jurgis along, and then start up the subject of pure food in which the editor was interested. Young Fisher's home was a little two-story brick house, dingy and weather-beaten outside, but attractive within. The room that Jurgis saw was half-lined with books, and upon the walls were many pictures, dimly visible in the soft yellow light. It was a cold, rainy night, so a log fire was crackling in the open hearth. 
Seven or eight people were gathered about it when Adams and his friend arrived, and Jurgis saw to his dismay that three of them were ladies. He had never talked to people of this sort before, and he fell into an agony of embarrassment. He stood in the doorway clutching his hat tightly in his hands, and made a deep bow to each of the persons as he was introduced. Then, when he was asked to have a seat, he took a chair in a dark corner and sat down upon the edge of it and wiped the perspiration off his forehead with his sleeve. He was terrified lest they should expect him to talk. There was the host himself, a tall athletic young man, clad in evening dress, as also was the editor, a dyspeptic-looking gentleman named Maynard. There was the former's frail young wife, and also an elderly lady who taught kindergarten in the settlement, and a young college student, a beautiful girl with an intense and earnest face. She only spoke once or twice while Jurgis was there. The rest of the time she sat by the table in the center of the room, resting her chin in her hands and drinking in the conversation. There were two other men whom young Fisher had introduced to Jurgis as Mr. Lucas and Mr. Schliemann. He heard them address Adams as comrade, and so he knew that they were socialists. The one called Lucas was a mild and meek-looking little gentleman of clerical aspect. He had been an itinerant evangelist, it transpired, and had seen the light and become a prophet of the new dispensation. He traveled all over the country, living like the apostles of old upon hospitality, and preaching upon street corners when there was no hall. The other man had been in the midst of a discussion with the editor when Adams and Jurgis came in, and at the suggestion of the host they resumed it after the interruption. Jurgis was soon sitting spellbound, thinking that here was surely the strangest man that had ever lived in the world. Nicholas Schliemann was a Swede, a tall, gaunt person with hairy hands and bristling yellow beard. He was a university man and had been a professor of philosophy, until, as he said, he had found that he was selling his character as well as his time. Instead he had come to America, where he lived in a garret room in this slum district, and made volcanic energy take the place of fire. He studied the composition of foodstuffs, and knew exactly how many proteids and carbohydrates his body needed, and by scientific chewing he said that he tripled the value of all he ate, so that it cost him eleven cents a day. About the first of July he would leave Chicago for his vacation, on foot, and when he struck the harvest fields he would set to work for two dollars and a half a day, and come home when he had another year's supply, a hundred and twenty-five dollars. That was the nearest approach to independence a man could make, under capitalism, he explained. He would never marry, for no sane man would allow himself to fall in love until after the revolution. He sat in a big armchair with his legs crossed, and his head so far in the shadow that one saw only two glowing lights reflected from the fire on the hearth. He spoke simply and utterly without emotion. With the manner of a teacher setting forth to a group of scholars an axiom in geometry, he would enunciate such propositions as made the hair of an ordinary person rise on end. And when the auditor had asserted his non-comprehension, 
he would proceed to elucidate by some new proposition yet more appalling. To Jurgis the Herr Dr. Schliemann assumed the proportions of a thunderstorm or an earthquake, and yet, strange as it might seem, there was a subtle bond between them, and he could follow the argument nearly all the time. He was carried over the difficult places in spite of himself, and he went plunging away in mad career, a very Mesepa ride upon the wild horse speculation. Nicholas Schliemann was familiar with all the universe, and with man as a small part of it. He understood human institutions, and blew them about like soap-bubbles. It was surprising that so much destructiveness could be contained in one human mind. Was it government? The purpose of government was the guarding of property rights, the perpetuation of ancient force and modern fraud. Or was it marriage? Marriage and prostitution were two sides of one shield, the predatory man's exploitation of the sex pleasure. The difference between them was a difference of class. If a woman had money she might dictate her own terms, equality, a life contract, and the legitimacy, that is, the property rights of her children. If she had no money she was a proletarian and sold herself for an existence. And then the subject became religion, which was the archfiend's deadliest weapon. Government oppressed the body of the wage-slave, but religion oppressed his mind and poisoned the stream of progress at its source. The working man was to fix his hopes upon a future life, while his pockets were picked in this one. He was brought up to the frugality, humility, obedience, in short to all the pseudo-virtues of capitalism. The destiny of civilization would be decided in one final death-struggle between the Red International and the Black, between Socialism and the Roman Catholic Church, while here at home the Stygian midnight of American evangelicalism. And here the preacher entered the field, and there was a lively tussle. Comrade Lucas was not what is called an educated man. He knew only the Bible, but it was the Bible interpreted by real experience. And what was the use, he asked, of confusing religion with men's perversions of it? That the church was in the hands of the merchants at the moment was obvious enough, but already there were signs of rebellion, and if Comrade Schliemann could come back a few years from now. Ah, yes, said the other, of course, I have no doubt that in a hundred years the Vatican will be denying that it ever opposed socialism, just as at present it denies that it ever tortured Galileo. "'I am not defending the Vatican,' exclaimed Lucas vehemently. "'I am defending the word of God, which is one long cry of the human spirit for deliverance from the sway of oppression. Take the twenty-fourth chapter of the book of Job, which I am accustomed to quote in my addresses as the Bible upon the beef trust, or take the words of Isaiah, or of the Master himself, not the elegant prince of our debauched and vicious art, not the jeweled idol of our society churches, but the Jesus of the awful reality, the man of sorrow and pain, the outcast, despised of the world, who had nowhere to lay his head. I will grant you Jesus, interrupted the other. Well, then, cried Lucas, 
And why should Jesus have nothing to do with his church? Why should his words and his life be of no authority among those who profess to adore him? Here is a man who was the world's first revolutionist, the true founder of the socialist movement, a man whose whole being was one flame of hatred for wealth and all that wealth stands for, for the pride of wealth and the luxury of wealth and the tyranny of wealth, who was himself a beggar and a tramp, a man of the people, an associate of saloon-keepers and women of the town, who again and again in the most explicit language denounced wealth and the holding of wealth, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, sell that ye have and give alms, blessed are ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, woe unto you that are rich, for ye shall have received your consolation. Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven, who denounced in unmeasured terms the exploiters of his own time. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Woe unto you also, you lawyers! Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Who drove out the businessmen and brokers from the temple with a whip? Who was crucified, think of it, for an incendiary and a disturber of the social order? And this man they have made into the high priest of property and smug respectability, a divine sanction of all the horrors and abominations of modern commercial civilization. Jeweled images are made of him, sensual priests burn incense to him, and modern pirates of industry bring their dollars wrung from the toil of helpless women and children, and build temples to him, and sit in cushioned seats and listen to his teachings expounded by doctors of dusty divinity. "'Bravo!' cried Schliemann, laughing. But the other was in full career. He had talked this subject every day for five years, and had never yet let himself be stopped. "'This Jesus of Nazareth!' he cried. "'This class-conscious working man, this union carpenter, this agitator, lawbreaker, firebrand, anarchist, he, the sovereign lord and master of a world which grinds the bodies and souls of human beings into dollars, if he could come into the world this day and see the things that man have made in his name, would it not blast his soul with horror? Would he not go mad at the sight of it, he, the prince of mercy and love? That dreadful night when he lay in the garden of Gethsemane and writhed in agony until he sweat blood, do you think that he saw anything worse than he might see tonight upon the plains of Manchuria, where men march out with a jeweled image of him before him, to do wholesale murder for the benefit of foul monsters of sensuality and cruelty? Do you not know that if he were in St. Petersburg now, he would take the whip with which he drove out the bankers from his temple. Here the speaker paused for an instant for breath. No, comrade, said the other dryly, for he was a practical man. He would take pretty little imitation lemons, such as are now being shipped into Russia, handy for carrying in the pockets, and strong enough to blow a whole temple out of sight. Lucas waited until the company had stopped laughing over this. Then he began again. But look at it from the point of view of practical politics, comrade. Here is an historical figure whom all men reverence and love, who some regard as divine, and who was one of us, 
who lived our life and taught our doctrine. And now shall we leave him in the hands of his enemies? Shall we allow them to stifle and stultify his example? We have his words, which no one can deny, and shall we not quote them to the people, and prove to them what he was, and what he taught, and what he did? No, no, a thousand times no! We shall use his authority to turn out the knaves and sluggards from his ministry, and we shall yet rouse the people to action. Lucas halted again, and the other stretched out his hand to a paper on the table. Here, comrade, he said with a laugh, here is a place for you to begin. A bishop whose wife has just been robbed of fifty thousand dollars worth of diamonds, and a most unctuous and oily of bishops, an eminent and scholarly bishop, a philanthropist and friend of labor bishop, a civic federation decoy duck for the chloroforming of the wage working man. To this little passage of arms the rest of the company sat as spectators. But now Mr. Maynard, the editor, took occasion to remark, somewhat naively, that he had always understood that socialists had a cut-and-dried program for the future of civilization whereas here were two active members of the party who, from what he could make out, were agreed about nothing at all. Would the two, for his enlightenment, try to ascertain just what they had in common and why they belonged to the same party? This resulted, after much debating, in the formulating of two carefully worded propositions. First, that a socialist believes in the common ownership and democratic management of the means of producing the necessities of life, and second, that a socialist believes that the means by which this is to be brought about is the class-conscious political organizations of the wage-earners. Thus far they were at one, but no farther. To Lucas, the religious zealot, the cooperative commonwealth was the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven, which is within you. To the other, Socialism was simply a necessary step toward a far distant goal, a step to be tolerated with impatience. Schliemann called himself a philosophic anarchist, and he explained that an anarchist was one who believed that the end of human existence was the free development of every personality, unrestricted by laws save those of its own being. Since the same kind of match would light everyone's fire, and the same shaped loaf of bread would fill everyone's stomach, it would be perfectly feasible to submit industry to the control of a majority vote. There was only one earth, and the quantity of material things was limited. Of intellectual and moral things, on the other hand, there was no limit, and one could have more without another's having less. Hence communism in material production anarchism in intellectual was the formula of modern proletarian thought. As soon as the birth agony was over and the wounds of society had been healed, there would be established a simple system whereby each man was credited with his labor and debited with his purchases, and after that the processes of production, exchange, and consumption would go on automatically, and without our being conscious of them any more than a man is conscious of the beating of his heart. And then, explained Schliemann, society would break up into independent self-governing communities of mutually congenial persons, examples of which at present were clubs, churches, and political parties. After the revolution 
all the intellectual, artistic, and spiritual activities of men would be cared for by such free associations. Romantic novelists would be supported by those who liked to read romantic novels, and Impressionist painters would be supported by those who liked to look at Impressionist pictures, and the same with preachers and scientists, editors and actors and musicians. If anyone wanted to work or paint or pray, and could find no one to maintain him, he could support himself by working part of the time. That was the case at present, the only difference being that the competitive wage system compelled a man to work all the time to live, while after the abolition of privilege and exploitation anyone would be able to support himself by an hour's work a day. Also the artist audience of the present was a small minority of people all debased and vulgarized by the effort it had cost them to win in the commercial battle, of the intellectual and artistic activities which would result when the whole of mankind was set free from the nightmare of competition, we could at present form no conception whatever. And then the editor wanted to know upon what ground Dr. Schliemann asserted that it might be possible for a society to exist upon an hour's toil by each of its members. Just what, answered the other, would be the productive capacity of society if the present resources of science were utilized, we have no means of ascertaining, but we may be sure it would exceed anything that would sound reasonable to minds inured to the ferocious barbarities of capitalism. After the triumph of the international proletariat war would of course become inconceivable, and who can figure the cost of war to humanity? not merely the value of the lives and the material that it destroys, not merely the cost of keeping millions of men in idleness, of arming and equipping them for battle and parade, but the drain upon the vital energies of society by the war attitude and the war terror, the brutality and ignorance, the drunkenness, prostitution, and crime it entails, the industrial impotence and the moral deadness. Do you think that it would be too much to say that two hours of the working time of every efficient member of a community goes to feed the red fiend of war? And then Schliemann went on to outline some of the wastes of competition, the losses of industrial warfare, the ceaseless worry and friction, the vices, such as drink, for instance, the use of which had nearly doubled in twenty years, as a consequence of the intensification of the economic struggle, the idle and unproductive members of the community, the frivolous rich and the pauperized poor, the law and the whole machinery of repression, the wastes of social ostentation, the milliners and tailors, the hairdressers, dancing masters, chefs and lackeys. You understand, he said, that in a society dominated by the fact of commercial competition, Money is necessarily the test of proudness, and wastefulness the sole criterion of power. So we have, at the present moment, a society with, say, thirty percent of the population occupied in producing useless articles, and one percent occupied in destroying them. And this is not all, for the servants and panderers of the parasites are also parasites, the milliners and the jewelers and the lackeys have also to be supported by the useful members of the community. And bear in mind also that this monstrous disease affects not merely the idlers and their menials, 
its poison penetrates the whole social body beneath the hundred thousand women of the elite are a million middle-class women miserable because they are not of the elite and trying to appear of it in public and beneath them in turn are five million farmers wives reading fashion papers and trimming bonnets and shop girls and serving maids selling themselves into brothels for cheap jewelry and imitation sealskin robes and then consider that added to this competition in display you have like oil on the flames a whole system of competition in selling you have manufacturers contriving tens of thousands of catchpenny devices storekeepers displaying them and newspapers and magazines filled up with advertisements of them and don't forget the waste of fraud put in young fisher when one comes to the ultra-modern profession of advertising responded schliemann the science of persuading people to buy what they do not want he is in the very center of the ghastly charnel house of capitalist destructiveness and he scarcely knows which of a dozen horrors to point out first but consider the waste in time and energy incidental to making ten thousand varieties of a thing for purposes of ostentation and snobbishness where one variety would do for use consider all the waste incidental to the manufacture of cheap qualities of goods of goods made to sell and deceive the ignorant consider the wastes of adulteration the shoddy clothing the cotton blankets the unstable tenements the ground cork life preservers the adulterated milk the aniline soda water the potato flour sausages and consider the moral aspects of the thing put in the ex-preacher precisely said schliemann the low knavery and the ferocious cruelty incidental to them the plotting and the lying and the bribing the blustering and bragging the screaming egotism the hurrying and worrying of course imitation and adulteration are the essence of competition they are but another form of the phrase to buy in the cheapest market and sell in the dearest a government official has stated that the nation suffers a loss of a billion and a quarter dollars a year through adulterated foods which means of course not only materials wasted that might have been useful outside of the human stomach but doctors and nurses for people who would otherwise have been well and undertakers for the whole human race ten or twenty years before the proper time then again consider the waste of time and energy required to sell these things in a dozen stores where one would do there are a million or two of business firms in the country and five or ten times as many clerks and consider the handling and rehandling the accounting and reaccounting the planning and worrying the balancing of petty profit and loss consider the whole machinery of the civil law made necessary by these processes the libraries of ponderous tomes the courts and juries to interpret them the lawyers studying to circumvent them the pettifogging and chicanery the hatreds and lies consider the waste incidental to the blind and haphazard production of commodities the factories closed the workers idle the goods spoiling in storage consider the activities of the stock manipulator the paralyzing of whole industries the over-stimulation of others for speculative purposes the assignments and bank failures 
the crises and panics, the deserted towns and the starving populations. Consider the energies wasted in the seeking of markets, the sterile trades, such as drummer, solicitor, bill-poster, advertising agent. Consider the wastes, incidental to the crowding in the cities, made necessary by competition and by monopoly railroad rates. Consider the slums, the bad air, the disease and the waste of vital energies. Consider the office buildings, the waste of time and material in the piling of story upon story and the burrowing underground. Then take the whole business of insurance, the enormous mass of administrative and clerical labor it involves, and all utter waste. I do not follow that, said the editor. The cooperative commonwealth is a universal automatic insurance company and savings bank for all its members. Capital, being the property of all, injury to it is shared by all and made up by all. The bank is the universal government credit account, the ledger in which every individual's earnings and spendings are balanced. There is also a universal government bulletin, in which are listed and precisely described everything which the commonwealth has for sale. As no one makes any profit by the sale, there is no longer any stimulus to extravagance and no misrepresentation, no cheating, no adulteration or imitation, no bribery or grafting. How is the price of an article determined? The price is the labor it has cost to make and deliver it, and it is determined by the first principles of arithmetic. The million workers in the nation's wheat fields have worked a hundred days each, and the total product of the labor is a billion bushels, so the value of a bushel of wheat is the tenth part of a farm labor day. If we employ an arbitrary symbol and pay, say, five dollars a day for farm work, then the cost of a bushel of wheat is fifty cents. You say for farm work, said Mr. Maynard. Then labor is not to be paid alike? Manifestly not since some work is easy and some hard, and we should have millions of rural mail carriers and no coal miners. Of course, the wages may be left the same and the hours varied. One or the other will have to be varied continually, according as a greater or less number of workers is needed in any particular industry. That is precisely what is done at present, except that the transfer of the workers is accomplished blindly and imperfectly by rumors and advertisements, instead of instantly and completely by a universal government bulletin. How about those occupations in which time is difficult to calculate? What is the labor cost of a book? Obviously it is the labor cost of the paper, printing, and binding of it, about a fifth of its present cost. And the author? I have already said that the state could not control intellectual production. The state might say that it had taken a year to write the book, and the author might say it had taken thirty. Goethe said that every bon mot of his had cost a purse of gold. What I outline here is a national, or rather international, system for the providing of the material needs of men. Since a man has intellectual needs also, he will work longer, earn more, and provide for them to his own taste and in his own way. I live on the same earth as the majority, I wear the same kind of shoes and sleep in the same kind of bed, but I do not think the same kind of thoughts, and I do not wish to pay for such thinkers as the majority selects. I wish such things to be left to free effort, 
as at present. If people want to listen to a certain preacher, they get together and contribute what they please, and pay for a church, and support the preacher, and then listen to him. I, who do not want to listen to him, stay away, and it costs me nothing. In the same way there are magazines about Egyptian coins and Catholic saints and flying machines and athletic records, and I know nothing about any of them. On the other hand, if wage slavery were abolished, and I could earn some spare money without paying tribute to an exploiting capitalist, then there would be a magazine for the purpose of interpreting and popularizing the gospel of Friedrich Nietzsche, the prophet of evolution, and also of Horace Fletcher, the inventor of the noble science of clean eating, and incidentally, perhaps for the discouraging of long skirts and the scientific breeding of men and women, and the establishing of divorce by mutual consent. Dr. Schliemann paused for a moment. That was a lecture, he said with a laugh, and yet I am only begun. What else is there? asked Maynard. I have pointed out some of the negative wastes of competition, answered the other. I have hardly mentioned the positive economies of cooperation. Allowing five to a family, there are fifteen million families in this country, and at least ten million of these live separately, the domestic drudge being either the wife or a wage slave. Now, set aside the modern system of pneumatic house-cleaning and the economies of cooperative cooking, and consider one single item the washing of dishes. Surely it is moderate to say that the dishwashing for a family of five takes half an hour a day. With ten hours as a day's work it takes, therefore, half a million able-bodied persons, mostly women, to do the dishwashing of the country. And note that this is a most filthy and deadening and brutalizing work, that it is a cause of anemia, nervousness, ugliness, and ill-temper, of prostitution, suicide, and insanity, of drunken husbands and degenerate children, for all of which things the community has naturally to pay. And now consider that in each of my little free communities there would be a machine which would wash and dry the dishes, and do it not merely to the eye and the touch, but scientifically, sterilizing them, and do it at a saving of all the drudgery and nine-tenths of the time. All of these things you may find in the books of Mrs. Gilman, and then take Kropotkin's fields, factories, and workshops, and read about the new science of agriculture, which has been built up in the last ten years, by which with made soils and intensive culture a gardener can raise ten or twelve crops in a season, and two hundred tons of vegetables upon a single acre, by which the population of the whole globe could be supported on the soil now cultivated in the United States alone. It is impossible to apply such methods now, owing to the ignorance and poverty of our scattered farming population. But imagine the problem of providing the food supply of our nation, once taken in hand systematically and rationally by scientists. All the poor and rocky land set apart for a national timber reserve, in which our children play and our young men hunt, and our poets dwell. The most favorable climate and soil for each product selected, the exact requirements of the community known, and the acreage figured accordingly. The most improved machinery employed under the direction of expert agricultural chemists. 
I was brought up on a farm, and I know the awful deadliness of farm work, and I like to picture it all as it will be after the revolution. To picture the great potato-planting machine, drawn by four horses, or an electric motor, plowing the furrow, cutting and dropping and covering the potatoes, and planting a score of acres a day. To picture the great potato-digging machine run by electricity, perhaps, and moving across a thousand-acre field, scooping up earth and potatoes, and dropping the latter into sacks. To every other kind of vegetable and fruit handled in the same way, apples and oranges picked by machinery, cows milked by electricity, things which are already done, as you may know. To picture the harvest fields of the future, to which millions of happy men and women come for a summer holiday, brought by special trains, the exactly needful number to each place. And to contrast all this with our present agonizing system of independent small farming, a stunted, haggard, ignorant man made it with a yellow, lean, and sad-eyed drudge and toiling from four o'clock in the morning until nine at night, working the children as soon as they are able to walk, scratching the soil with its primitive tools, and shut out from all knowledge and hope, from all their benefits of science and invention, and all the joys of the spirit, held to a bare existence by competition in labor, and boasting of his freedom because he is too blind to see his chains. Dr. Schliemann paused for a moment, and then he continued, Place beside this fact of an unlimited food supply the newest discovery of physiologists that most of the ills of the human system are due to overfeeding. And then again it has been proven that meat is unnecessary as a food, and meat is obviously more difficult to produce than vegetable food, less pleasant to prepare and handle, and more likely to be unclean. But what of that, so long as it tickles the palate? more strongly. "'How would socialism change that?' asked the girl student quickly. It was the first time she had spoken. "'So long as we have wage slavery,' answered Schliemann, "'it matters not in the least how debasing and repulsive a task may be. It is easy to find people to perform it. But just as soon as labor is set free, then the price of such work will begin to rise.' So one by one the old, dingy, and unsanitary factories will come down. It will be cheaper to build new. And so the steamships will be provided with stoking machinery, and so the dangerous trades will be made safe, or substitutes will be found for their products. In exactly the same way, as the citizens of our industrial republic become refined, year by year the cost of slaughterhouse products will increase until eventually those who want to eat meat will have to do their own killing, and how long do you think the custom would survive then? To go on to another item, one of the necessary accompaniments of capitalism in a democracy is political corruption, and one of the consequences of civic administration by ignorant and vicious politicians is that preventable diseases kill off half our population." and even if science were allowed to try, it could do little, because the majority of human beings are not yet human beings at all, but simply machines for the creating of wealth for others. They are penned up in filthy houses, and left to rot and stew in misery, and the conditions of their life 
make them ill faster than all the doctors in the world could heal them. And so, of course, they remain as centers of contagion, poisoning the lives of all of us and making happiness impossible for even the most selfish. For this reason I would seriously maintain that all the medical and surgical discoveries that science can make in the future will be of less importance than the application of the knowledge we already possess, when the disinherited of the earth have established their right to a human existence. And here the Herr Doctor relapsed into silence again. Jurgis had noticed that the beautiful young girl who sat by the center table was listening with something of the same look that he himself had worn, the time when he had first discovered socialism. Jurgis would have liked to talk to her. He felt sure that she would have understood him. Later on in the evening, when the group broke up, he heard Mrs. Fisher say to her, in a low voice, "'I wonder if Mr. Maynard will still write the same things about socialism,' to which she answered, "'I don't know.' but if he does we shall know that he is a knave. And only a few hours after this came election day, when the long campaign was over and the whole country seemed to stand still and hold its breath, awaiting the issue. Jurgis and the rest of the staff of Heinz Hotel could hardly stop to finish their dinner before they hurried off to the big hall which the party had hired for that evening. But already there were people waiting and already the telegraph instrument on the stage had begun clicking off the returns. When the final accounts were made up, the socialist vote proved to be over four hundred thousand, an increase of something like three hundred and fifty percent in four years, and that was doing well. But the party was dependent for its early returns upon messages from the locals, and naturally those locals which had been most successful were the ones which felt most like reporting. And so that night everyone in the hall believed that the vote was going to be six or seven or even eight hundred thousand. Just such an incredible increase had actually been made in Chicago and in the state. The vote of the city had been sixty-seven hundred in nineteen hundred, and now it was forty-seven thousand. That of Illinois had been ninety-six hundred, and now it was sixty-nine thousand. So as the evening waxed and the crowd piled in, the meeting was a sight to be seen. Bulletins would be read, and the people would shout themselves hoarse, and then someone would make a speech, and there would be more shouting, and then a brief silence and more bulletins. There would come messages from the secretaries of neighboring states, reporting their achievements. The vote of Indiana had gone from twenty-three hundred to twelve thousand, of Wisconsin from 7,000 to 28,000, of Ohio from 4,800 to 36,000. There were telegrams to the national office from enthusiastic individuals in little towns which had made amazing and unprecedented increases in a single year. Benedict, Kansas, from 26 to 260, Henderson, Kentucky, from 19 to 111, Holland, Michigan, from 14 to 208, Cleo, Oklahoma, from zero to a hundred and four, Martin's Ferry, Ohio, from zero to two hundred and ninety-six, and many more of the same kind. There were literally hundreds of such towns. There would be reports from half a dozen of them in a single batch of telegrams, 
and the men who read the dispatches off to the audience were old campaigners, who had been to the places and helped to make the vote, and could make appropriate comments. Quincy, Illinois, from 189 to 831, that was where the mayor had arrested a socialist speaker. Crawford County, Kansas, from 285 to 1,975, that was the home of the appeal to reason. Battle Creek, Michigan, from 4,261 to 10,184, that was the answer of labor to the Citizens' Alliance movement. And then there were official returns from the various precincts and wards of the city itself. Whether it was a factory district or one of the silk stocking wards seemed to make no particular difference in the increase. But one of the things which surprised the party leaders most was the tremendous vote that came rolling in from the stockyards. Packingtown comprised three wards of the city, and the vote in the spring of 1903 had been 500, and in the fall of the same year 1,600. Now, only one year later, it was over 6,300, and the Democratic vote only 8,800. There were other wards in which the Democratic vote had been actually surpassed, and in two districts members of the state legislature had been elected. Thus Chicago now led the country. It had set a new standard for the party. It had shown the working men the way. So spoke an orator upon the platform, and two thousand pairs of eyes were fixed upon him, and two thousand voices were cheering his every sentence. The orator had been the head of the city's relief bureau in the stockyards, until the sight of misery and corruption had made him sick. He was young, hungry-looking, full of fire, and as he swung his long arms and beat up the crowd, to Jurgis he seemed the very spirit of the revolution. Organize! 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 That was his cry. He was afraid of this tremendous vote which his party had not expected, and which it had not earned. These men are not socialists, he cried. The election will pass, and the excitement will die and people will forget about it, and if you forget about it too, if you sink back and rest upon your oars, we shall lose this vote that we have polled today, and our enemies will laugh us to scorn. It rests with you to take your resolution, now in the flush of victory, to find these men who have voted for us, and bring them to our meetings, and organize them, and bind them to us. We shall not find all our campaigns as easy as this one." Everywhere in the country tonight the old party politicians are studying this vote and setting their sails by it, and nowhere will they be quicker or more cunning than here in our own city. Fifty thousand socialist votes in Chicago means a municipal ownership democracy in the spring, and then they will fool the voters once more, and all the powers of plunder and corruption will be swept into office again. But whatever they may do when they get in, there is one thing they will not do, and that will be the thing for which they were elected. They will not give the people of our city municipal ownership. They will not mean to do it. They will not try to do it. All that they will do is give our party in Chicago the greatest opportunity that has ever come to socialism in America. We shall have the sham reformers self-stultified and self-convicted, we shall have the radical democracy left without a lie with which to cover its nakedness, and then we will begin the rush that will never be checked. 
the tide that will never turn till it has reached its flood, that will be irresistible, overwhelming, the rallying of the outraged workingmen of Chicago to our standard. And we shall organize them, we shall drill them, we shall marshal them for the victory, we shall bear down the opposition, we shall sweep it before us, and Chicago will be ours. Chicago will be ours. Chicago will be ours. This is the end of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Recording by Tom Weiss.